G'day and welcome to the Hunting Connection Podcast. My name is Zach Williams and I am your host. Here we'll connect you with hunters, fishers and outdoor enthusiasts from around the globe. This podcast will share hunting and fishing stories including past experiences and tackle the tough hunting stereotypes our community faces. We hope to be a positive influence to those outside the community while also having a laugh along the way. Hope you enjoy the podcast. G'day and welcome to another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. Um, on this episode, it's a very exciting one for myself as we've got Barry Howlett, um, the chairman of the Blonde Bay Hog Deer Advisory Group on. How are you going, mate? Yeah, well, thanks, Zach. Yourself? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. I'm very excited. Um, off to go hunt uh, Snake Island in about three weeks' time, so I've been... Very, very excited for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. So you're period two? Yeah, yeah, period two. So ver- looking very much forward to it. <laughs> it's a big journey from Adelaide down here over yeah. over to there. So Yeah, I'm I'm envious. It's a it's a fantastic opportunity, so Yeah, it is. Um judging by a few people I've spoken to, one of the um emergencies in my in, in my group, he um, had been applying for 30 years and he drew an emergency spot and got in that way. So that's uh, pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so where are you from, Barry? Uh, I live in Gippsland in Victoria. So um, where the hog deer ballots happen is sort of further east and further south from me, but I'm yeah right in the middle of Gippsland, which is sort of deep in the heart of I suppose what you call traditional deer hunting country in Victoria. Um, grew up with sort of samba hunting all the way to the north and and then we've got the hoggies down on the coast. So pretty cool spot to live if you're into deer. Yeah, it's uh, beautiful. I did a um, samba trip down there a few few years back over to um, Orbost area um, and caught up with a friend over there. And yeah, it's just a beautiful part of the country. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We like we like living here, so um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a hunters and fishermen's paradise, that's for sure. So, what do you do for work, Barry? Um, I actually work for uh, WSAA Victoria Sporting Shooters Association. Beautiful. Um, communications manager there, so I came across to WSAA on about May last year after about nine years with the Australian Deer Association. Very nice. So you you live and breathe hunting and shooting, which is great to hear. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where I was sort of lucky enough to um, to make my passion my job. So um, yeah, a lot of people don't get that privilege. So it's it's a real privilege for me. Yeah, hundred percent. It definitely definitely sounds that way. That's for sure. So how did you get into hunting and the outdoors lifestyle? Uh, I didn't come from a hunting family per se. I'd always um, when I was really young. I had an uncle who fished who'd take me fishing occasionally, but really got into it. With mates, um, growing up in Gippsland, I was lucky enough to go to school with guys who had properties and, and we'd go out rabbit shooting and, and doing that sort of stuff. And um, one of my, my mates from my, our teen years um, was from a very big hound hunting family. Uh, so when I was sort of in my late teens to early 20s, he dragged me up to the hound camp to go and hunt with his dad and um, yeah, went on one hound hunt and I was hooked and didn't miss a weekend for about 10 years after that. That's awesome. Um, I haven't 
I've seen lots on hound hunting. Um, I've never done it myself. I'm very curious on it. Eventually, I hope to um, get somebody on. I've been given a few different different names to and contact people to get on to chat about hound hunting and bring some more positive light towards it. It definitely looks like a ball of fun, that's for sure. Yeah, it is. It's a really dynamic form of hunting. Um, and for an introduction to deer, I thought it, it was a really good apprenticeship. You, you're with a lot of experienced hunters all the time. Um, you get to see a lot of deer. Um, you know, for the first few years hound hunting before you figure out what you're doing, you get you see them dead more than alive. Yeah. Um, but but you get to be a part of a hunt and see the deer and 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 learn your sign and learn where your deer are coming from and how they move and how they use the bush and. I think it was a really good apprenticeship. It also forces a bit of a discipline. If you're going to be part of that team, um, it becomes a, an all-encompassing thing. Sort of, you know, we were we hunted every weekend that we could. Um, the core members of the team are expected to be up there every weekend. They're expected to be there on Wednesday night doing the cut-up of the deer. They're expected to be pitching and looking after the hounds over summer. So it becomes sort of an all-encompassing hunting lifestyle, I suppose. Is that still your primary way of hunting these days? Uh, no, not so much. I, yeah. I'm still in touch with those guys and, and welcome and go up with them when I can. But um, with family and time constraints and different work constraints, I um, I tend to go stalking and I got involved in Sunday Island about six or seven years ago. So a lot of my leisure time and a lot of my my spare time, I suppose, is, um, is spent over on the island mucking around with the deer over there. Yeah, very nice, very nice. Um, yeah, there seems to be lots of different conservation um, projects and stuff going over there and um, like whole little – I've heard bits and pieces like a few years ago you could buy steaks in the island or some something like that to go over there. and. Yeah, it's it. a um, it's a cooperative. It's um, about 60, 65 years old, the co-op. And, yeah, it's owned by the members, so there's oh, – I'll get the numbers wrong, but somewhere around 200 shares – available in the co-op um so people can join interested hunters can come for an open day and, and join the island buy a share and, and then they're a part of it yeah very nice yeah i've seen a few photos from the um from the weekend that you guys just had for the information weekend for um the ballot it definitely looked like a um great weekend so yeah it's an ideal place for um for doing something like that we're really lucky to have um, the education weekends sort of been held in different places over the years, but uh, when the team came up with the idea of going to the island, and we were able to make the logistics of that work of of getting you know, 40, 40 extra guests onto the island on a Saturday and back <laughs> off on a Sunday, and and finding somewhere for them to sleep and feeding them and all that, um, it's a really great place to have an education weekend because you're amongst the deer in their habitat um, for people who haven't had much experience with hog deer, they're, they're quite small. Um, you know, the name suggests that they're about the size of a, a small pig. Yeah. And yep. it's in that sort of tussock country, which is classic of what you'll probably see when you get to Snake Island. It gave people a real eye-opener of just how difficult they can be to see. Um, they can hide in plain sight. You can be on a big open plain and there'll be deer in behind the tussock and, and you just can't see them there until they move. Because they, um big stags are, what, about 70 centimetres high and about 55 kilos, 60 kilos-ish? Yeah, yeah. The, the coastal ones would probably top out at around 50 is a really big stag. Okay, wow. Um, for the coastal, those mainland deer tend to get a bit bigger. They're yep. just on, on improved pasture all their lives. 
Um, but yeah, so they're, they're not the you know, sheep or pig sized animal. Yeah, wow, that's that's insane. I'm, I've I've seen them from a distance. Um, there's a small farm here in South Australia, just off of the southeastern freeway, that has a small enclosure with them. And if you look hard enough, you can just see them from the road. So that's that's as close as I've I've seen one alive. <laughs> um, so there's a few few different species of deer on um, Sunday Island. Is that correct? We've got two species. We've got hog deer and there were fallow deer introduced there in the late 70s as a second species yep. for the members to hunt. Um, the co-op's primarily focused on managing hog deer, though. It's um, it's called Para Park and Para is one of the early names for hog deer. Um, and it's the, the sole focus is managing the hog deer, but along with the hog deer, we've got that second species of fallow, which when they were introduced was a real novelty. Yep. Um, you couldn't hu- you couldn't hunt fallow deer anywhere in Victoria, and they're very hard for people to get access to. And um, now they're yeah they're ubiquitous. On where I live here in West Gippsland, we had one show up on a a small farmlet that's in town about 500 metres from my house last year, and there seems to be fallow deer everywhere. But when they were introduced to the island, they were a really rare thing. Yeah, well. Um, and there's a, is there a couple of small enclosures on there too? Some got some um, European. Um, fallow. Yeah, yeah. There's a small study pen with um, a couple of Hungarian fallow deer Hungarian. in there, and and another pen that's just got some some hog deer. It's probably a hangover from the early days when when the island first started. There was little known about hog deer, and lots of the stuff we know internationally about hog deer came from the study pen on Sunday Island. So that's awesome. learning learning about their mating habits and gestation periods and all that sort of good stuff. Um, the pen's probably not really used much for scientific research anymore. We've probably learnt what we're going to learn, but it's still nice to have deer in a pen that um, it's a nice big open pen. The deer are happy there and comfortable. And you know, if we've got guests down and we can't see any deer in the field or it's during hunting season and we can't take them out, we can take them and still have a look at the deer in the pen. That's awesome. That's, that's yeah, so, so good. Um, so hog deer, how did they get to Australia? Uh, they're brought in by the Acclimatisation Society, which was um, uh, the forerunner of the Melbourne Zoological Society that now runs the Melbourne Zoo. And, and they brought in all sorts of weird, wonderful critters. They brought the samba in. They brought um, you know, all different sorts of plants, rabbits, foxes, all sorts of things to make Australia a bit more like home for the, for the English settlers. Yeah. Um, so they came to Australia in 1861 the first population of hog deer, and they got released into the wild in 1865. Um, so they've they've been here for quite some time. But, yeah, they're brought in from India or Sri Lanka. The The history is a bit clouded, but they, they came over on a steamship from those places and released into the wild here in Victoria. That's awesome. Do you know how many roughly were originally released or...? Oh, off the top of my head, it was it was a small number, sort of 10 deer yep. or thereabouts. Um and what's there now? About three thousand. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in, in that in vicinity. Um, yeah, there, there's been there was a study done a few years ago that went to put a number on them. Um, there's been an awful lot killed on Wilson's Promontory and a cull since then. Um, but there's some really good strong populations on the mainland. We've got a, a good strong population on Sunday Island. Uh, a good number on Snake Island. So, yeah, yeah, there'd easily be probably three thousand of them in that Victorian range. That's awesome. That's 
is is that more than their their home home area? Really hard to get good information. Um, it's war torn, civil wars going on where they come from, and um, they're certainly uh, listed as threatened with the International Union of Conservation and Nature. So they're they're not doing terribly well in their home range. It's probably the most stable and secure population of hog deer in the world, is of wild hog deer anyways in coastal Victoria. Am I right by saying that it's the only huntable population in the world? Wild huntable population? Wild huntable population, yep. yeah. There's um there's some behind wire stuff in Texas. Yep. Um just like there's just about every critter on earth you can imagine to hunt in Texas if you want to, I think. But <laughs> Yeah, I've been over yeah. there. There's some, some interesting animals roaming the, the sides sides of the roads, that's for sure. <laughs> but but where where you're going to Snake Island, um, I'd consider it to be the best public land hunting opportunity for hog deer in the world. That's awesome. That's and if if you look at the private land stuff, there's a there's a property here in Gippsland that does a really awesome job of managing them. Um, but they've had hunters like Jim Shockey and people like that come over and hunt hog deer on that property. So um, when it comes to wild hog deer, yeah, Victoria is the pinnacle. That wouldn't be. Is it is it Corey on the hog yeah. deer group? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, oh, that's their place. Yeah, yeah. I watch. What pay attention to that group, especially after draw, drawing a spot, and um, yeah, the management that he does looks like he he does great clearing a lot of samba out the area. Do they um, clash a bit? Do they or just out samba out compete the hog deer? Yeah, more out compete them for for food and that sort of thing rather than clash with them. Um, and and yeah, those people with that private land management have done an awful lot for mainland hog deer. There's probably more hog deer in coastal Victoria as a result of them being there and managing them privately for hunting. So it's a really good thing. And on the gene side of thing, um, I had one of my, my mates who's a biologist do a bit of looking into hog deer. Um, and he was saying that um, chittle um, have pretty strong genes in the Australian population. Yeah, there was a study done again four or five years ago that indicated that there were yeah, chittle markers in in the DNA of the hog deer in Australia. Um, what's probably not known is where that came from. So whether the the deer were picked up in in the subcontinent that came here with that already in their DNA, or whether it happened in Australia, it, it's speculated that they could have interbred in a in an enclosure in Australia, but it's pretty unlikely they'd do that. Um, who knows? But what the missing piece of that puzzle, I suppose, the DNA they used to compare from India came from a very, very small sample. Um, to understand the DNA in the in the homeland would be the missing piece of the puzzle to understand what that means in the Australian context. But they're certainly, if you look at them, they look like a hog deer. They run like a hog deer. They taste like a hog deer. They're hog deer. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I'd I'd never heard that um, about the whole chittle bit until until one of my mates looked into it and um, yeah, blew me away. And yeah, we had that, that same conversation whether you know if it was like when they've introduced it here and they've introduced chittle as well because um, they released a number of different deer species into Australia or if it was something that um, was just in their DNA from their homeland. So. And and they are really closely related, like like Samba and Rusa are, you know. So the the scientific names Axis Axis and Axis Porcinus um, for chittle and and hoggies. So 
um, they've always been known to be very, very close genetically to begin with. And that would be why they're um, both two of the best eating deer species in the world. I've heard. I've had had chittle. Um, haven't had hog deer yet, but I've heard that's uh, top of the Australian species. What's your your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, hog deer are really tasty deer. Um, I, yeah, I find them quite good to eat. Um, although, like fallow deer from South Australia, um, some of the fallow we've had off improved pasture in South Australia are pretty hard <laughs> to beat too. There's some really good eating. Offer those um, loosened paddocks around Water Valley there, yeah. Yeah, they go, they go pretty well. <laughs> they do. They get nice and fat. This year is going to be an incredible year throughout um, South Australia. There's still green patches of grass around everywhere, so I'm, I'm keen to see what pops around in Adelaide Hills. There's some nice, fat, juicy deer looking and getting around, so should have some good yeah. antler growth too. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Um, and we're seeing the same in hog deer range. We're coming off three really really good years um very wet heaps of growth um all the deer we're seeing are in just excellent body condition so it's about as good as it gets um it'll be more challenging hunting probably because of some of that growth and because there's water everywhere but but the condition of the animals is fantastic that's um great to hear so why why do you feel hog deer are treated differently to other deer species in Australia with having a season, a tag, a tag system, um, and then the ballot? Um, it's it's been hard fought and protected by hunters and and hunting organisations, uh, and it's because they're they're so dis, it's such a discrete population, um, so special internationally. It's as you said, it's the only huntable wild population of hog deer in the world so hunters have really fought to protect them um, even as far as when every other deer species was unprotected on public land in victoria back in 2014 hog deer were the only ones not to be and that was because of the hunting community saying hey well, look we really value these deer they would be quite vulnerable to heavy over harvesting and their impacts comparative to other deer species um, their agricultural impacts are beyond benign that you wouldn't know they're there unless they're there in some sorts of ridiculous numbers. Um, so there's no good rationale for treating them any other way, except for this ideology that says, if you're not native to this country, you must go. Yeah. That, that one's a tough subject. Um, the, my biologist friend that, um, I spoke about before, we're about to do a podcast on breaking down deer species in Australia and impacts and stuff like that. You know, me arguing on the hunter side of stuff, him arguing on the um, biology and environmental side of stuff. So it should be an interesting um, podcast and breaking down the um, Invasive Council's um, National Deer Plan as well. So. Yeah, and look, I could go on about that all night, but we'd get sidetracked. But um, <laughs> I, I suppose my take-home on that is that it really ought to be the impacts that matter. Um, if, if you're really interested in, in environmental outcomes, then it shouldn't matter if it's a native or an introduced species. Um, what really matters is is their impacts and, and the deer damage relationship. You know, how, how many deer are causing the desirable impact, how many we need to remove, and the same goes with kangaroos or um anything that's causing an impact exactly um, it, it really ought to be the impacts that matter and i think we get too hung up on the this animal's good this animal's bad because of who its great-grandparents were yeah native versus introduced <laughs> 
but yeah, that's that's something we could definitely go on all um, all night about. Um, how long has the how did the ballot, the ballot start, and how long has it been running for? All right, um, bit of a, a potted history. There was a the then Victorian Department of uh, Natural Resources and Environment or Conservation Forest and Wet, whatever they were called at the time. It changes names quite often. That department. Um, they had a deer advisory committee. It was a, a different time when when deer were a protected and and valued species, even for public land managers. Um, so back in 1982, they had a deer advisory committee and a fellow named David Young, who actually worked for the department down in Bairnsdale, um, made a recommendation to that committee that they rehabilitate a very small population of hog deer at the Bond Bay State Game Reserve. So Bond Bay is about 2,000 hectares of former farmland. It's on the northern shore of Lake Victoria in the Gippsland Lakes, about 20 kilometres southwest of Bairnsdale for people who know uh, Gippsland. A lot of people would know would have, would have driven through Gippsland and, and not known Bombay was there. Anyway, David recommended to the advisory committee that they look at rehabilitating that hog deer herd. Um, it went no further with the department, stalled till about 1984, and David managed to rally local hunters in East Gippsland. Um and got it financed jointly between the ADA and the SSAA Deer Stalkers Club to do some rehabilitation work on the deer. Uh, the Victorian government had a sanctuary at Serendip, which is to the west of Melbourne, between Melbourne and Geelong. So they managed to get six hinds and 15 stags from there and bring them to a pen to acclimatise them to, to the reserve. Uh, they went over to Snake Island and tried to capture deer they had a permit to get 10 hinds and two stags in early 1985 but were not successful in capturing them and then they approached um sunday island para park who agreed to come to the party and they got uh four hinds and two stags in 85 10 hinds in 86 and nine hinds and a stag in 1987 and that formed the nucleus of the there'd been a tiny population in that area but that formed the nucleus of the the rebirthing of hog deer around Blond Bay. Um, so also in 87, the Blond Bay Hog Deer Advisory Group was formed with a view to opening up that deer herd for belted hunting. That's awesome. Um, it sounds like it's got a um, rich conservation history and a lot of hard work's gone into it. I could um, imagine catching them wouldn't be the um, easiest of tasks, let alone finding them to catch them. Yeah, yeah, I've been involved in some some chemical capture stuff with Samba and fallow deer, and it's it's pretty full on. I've been involved in some calf capture with hog deer with young calves, but but capturing the mature ones, they end up using what was called a clover trap. So um, capturing them into cages by feeding them in, um, and and got the deer they needed. But yeah, it was it was no mean feat. No, that's awesome. It's um. Definitely got such a rich history. How did they get over to Snake Island? Because you mentioned there that they were already on their white when they set up the um, the Blonde Bay Ballot. Yeah, the original release was in Corner Inlet, um, Opossum Creek, which is sort of um, on the mainland, I suppose, in between Wilson's Promontory, Snake Island and Sunday Island. So the original release of deer was there, and, and whether they just travelled there at low tide, um, hog deer can swim reasonably well. Um, they've been known to certainly move between islands. We've, we do a capture and tag program on Sunday Island and we've had one of our deer show up hit by a car at San Remo, which is oh, 100, 
odd kilometres away down near Phillip Island. Yeah, wow. Um, so they they can travel around a bit. So I'm pretty sure it was just sort of a bit of natural migration happened around Corner Inlet, and they got themselves onto Snake and Sunday and and throughout that area. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I've heard heard stories of them swim back across between um Sunday I- uh, Snake Island and Port Welshpool. You know, people out in a boat seeing seeing a deer swimming across and stuff like that. <laughs> It's quite, um, certainly between Port Welshpool and Snake Island, um, when you're on there, you'll probably encounter the cattle. So the Snake Island cattlemen swim cattle across from Port Welshpool um, at low tide when, when there's the wind blowing the right way. It's it's quite a, a small channel and not a big swim. So they swim their cattle across and graze them on the island seasonally. So it's not not that difficult for an animal to get its way across there. Beautiful, yeah. That's uh, I I didn't realise they grazed over there, but makes sense with the um amount of um water troughs and that around there. So yeah, and if you look at um some of those bigger, more open places, um Cow Flat, Rifle Range, Big Hole, um it's a good thing that they do graze cattle on there. It keeps some of those really nice big open plains open, which certainly helps us with the hog deer. Yeah, very nice. I've been yeah studying where I've I've got a hunt and I got a centre map from a. From one of my, from one of my mates, I was looking at um, looking at Bullock Bullock Waterhole. For yeah, yeah. Giving, um, giving I, it a shot. I, so, I know people have been quite successful on Bullock. So, yeah, beautiful. Any um, hunting advice? <laughs> Heard um, it. Get get elevated and stay put. Um, is is the way to hunt hog deer is to get yourself some height, um, and get yourself hooked in for the long haul. So. Get in, get into your position. Get the wind in your favour, in your position, and just stay there and wait for them. Yeah, beautiful. I've got a stand currently being built at at the moment. I just had some photos of it sent through just before we started the podcast, so it's it's all becoming real now. I'm getting real excited. <laughs> um, how many people apply every year, and how many people are drawn? Uh, it varies from year to year, um, but. So usually around a couple of thousand people apply. Um, we have eight periods of seven hunters get drawn for Snake Island and then uh, 30 emergencies, I think it is. And then Bond Bay and Bull Pool, we have uh, two periods of four hunters each on those places. So, And then a pool of emergencies. So there's a hundred and something people get drawn. So maybe about a one in 20 chance of coming out of the barrel on any given ballot night. Yeah, wow, that's um, that's a lot more than than I thought. I I, I don't know why why I had about seventy in my head plus emergencies all up, but yeah, that's that's a definitely some good chances to get out there though. That's for sure. But you know, not that many get drawn. Period two, Snake Island. So yeah, yeah, I I heard that's um a bit <laughs> bit of an arsy arsy one to draw. That's for sure. <laughs> I had um one of one of the guys I know, he he drew as an emergency two years ago um, for period two. So he's given me some good advice and then he's drawn for period one this year. So, Oh, excellent. <laughs> Not many people get to hunt it, you know, two times in three years, which is just insane. <laughs> what does the future of hog deer hunting look like? Um, hopefully really good. There's constant pressure from the government and this um, 
it's we're forever pushing to keep them as a game animal and to keep that level of protection up. Um, and again, that's not that's not predicated on impacts. It's not people saying, "Hey, there's a real problem with hog deer." It's a real ideological position getting pushed. Um, but beyond that, hopefully, pretty good. There's good areas of public land, probably better public land than there's ever been or than there has been for a long time for hog deer hunting. Um, and then there's there's private landholders and a few more coming on board that are managing them for paid hunting. Yep. Um, which is very much the future, whether it be that, you know, the, the model of the big safari hunt or people paying for access. Um, but it's it's always been a sort of bespoke, I suppose, um, sort of pursuit. The, there's about a thousand sets of tags go out every year and about a 10% success rate on those tags. Um, so there's not a heap of hog deer get killed every year. We probably kill more on Sunday Island than get killed under the tag system on the mainland. Yeah, um, well, that's um, that's that's crazy. Um, with the tag, tag system, anyone can apply for them and then uh, do you still have to send them back at the end of April? Cause... Um, you, you do a um, just a return online now. Okay. Um, so, yeah, they've finally got a pretty good online licensing system in Victoria. So if you've got your game license, you can apply for your tags online they'll get sent out to you and if you don't use them or even if you do use them, but um, if you don't use them, you just fill in your return online um, and that means that those tag numbers are accounted for so that if they show up at a taxidermist and they haven't been through a checking station, um, someone's going to be in trouble. So those deer can still be accounted for, but, yeah, you don't have to go through the rigmarole of posting them back anymore. Okay, that's that's good to hear. Um, just on that What's the difference between free-range hog deer and high-fence hog deer hunting in Victoria? Do you still need a tag for those high-fence ones? And can Yeah, well, the high-fence stuff's technically not legal at all. Okay. So um, it happens, it goes on, and, and good luck to people. But, yeah, those deer would still need to be tagged. Yep. Um, there are private properties that operate under under extended season permits, so they're allowed to operate the the main hog deer season is in April. So if you've got a bit of private that you like to hunt or some public that you hunt, for most hog deer hunters, it's in April. Um, but there are private properties that the government's acknowledged they're managing hog deer for income um, and have given them an extended season to enable them, them to do that. Okay. So they put in a game management plan. They show that their offtake's going to be sustainable and then they can take hog deer for an extra month or an extra two months. Um, and then on Sunday Island, we've got a different setup again just because of the nature of, of what that cooperative is and, and how many deer we've got to take every year just to um, keep our island from getting eaten out. Yeah. So with the hog deer season, um, why, why is it April? So the, from my understanding, their main rut is towards the start of Feb about now? Yeah, um, sort of clouded in history, but I think a part of it was to avoid the main rut, was to um, make sure that deer aren't too vulnerable. Um, they're certainly, yeah, the, the boys are, are up and moving and, and a bit ruddy now. Hog deer don't have a, a rut as such, but there's certainly a lot of mating activity at the moment. It's peak breeding. Um, but my understanding is that it was set at April so that you'd still get deer that were in hard antler that were in good condition, so before their antler drop, but you're avoiding them being super vulnerable during that 
that peak mating season. Okay, beautiful. Um, what was I going to ask? I had another question lined up. Um, oh, checking in. Um, what type of um, measurements and stuff do they take when you um, check them in? Because you've got, what, a 24-hour period to get them checked in? Yeah, yeah. So they take all um, – they weigh the deer gutted um, and then take length measurements, um, take a, a measurement around the chest – um, so they take a length with them without tail, take a height measurement of the deer. Um, they will take um, a jawbone from the deer so that they can age it. Um, yeah, they're, they're the main measurements that get taken. Um, if it's a female deer, they'll check for reproductive conditions. So um, see if there's there's a fetus in there, which um, Basically, if you shoot a female hog deer, I'd be very surprised if there's not a fetus in there. They they will join almost as soon as they carve. Um, and most people who don't find a fetus when they shoot a female hog deer, it's because they haven't looked hard enough. Um, it might just be a small embryo or something, but it, you'll typically find one there. And and that's a really good way of making sure that the, the breeding population is good. You know, if your breeding rate was to get below 90%, say, um, you'd start to be a bit worried about something else going on. Yeah. What about um, inbreeding on Sunday Island and Snake Island and that whole those island areas? Um, yeah. It, look, it is a concern. the The genetic stuff we understand, uh, and looking at jawbones, there's a a deformity in our deer where they I'm not sure the exact tooth, but there, there's a missing molar on one jawbone. Um, that seems to come out, and that's that's proof of, of really tight genetic inbreeding, I suppose. You, know, you start for a very small population to begin with, and the fear is that that could um, present as a more serious genetic disease. Um, so, yeah, the inbreeding's a real concern, particularly on those island systems, and really the only way to ensure against it is to carry as many deer as you can. So. Is there um, any steps being introduced to um, introduce new bloodlines in or different bloodlines in from from other uh, areas? Just um, the political climate we're in, the government just would never allow such a thing. I mean, that, logically, that's what should happen is that we, we introduce some new blood. Um, but the problem, from my understanding, seems to happen when it's grandfather breeding over grandchild okay. or or some such thing as that, and and like I said, probably the best insurance against that is to carry a big population, which reduces the likelihood of that those sorts of breeding events happening. Um, it, it doesn't mean they won't happen, but it means they happen far less often when there's more options for the deer to breed. So what about age-wise? What's the typical age of stags being taken, taken during the ballot? Um, I haven't got the data on on the typical age. Sort of your peak deer are about five years old, five to eight. Okay. Um, but it really depends on the hunters in any given year. Um, most of the Snake Island ones have been taken reasonably mature deer, but it's public land and, and more importantly, it's up to the hunter. It's, it's hunter's choice. It really is their deer. And if if they've never taken a hog deer before or they'd be happy with it, a rep- representative six-point stag that might be 10 inches, then good luck to them and really happy for them. Um, the trophy's in the eye of the beholder. Um, I know other guys who have gone over there who 
you know, they're not coming home with anything less than sort of 14 inch because they've already got better hog deer than that. And, and that's what they're after. So you know, I couldn't answer exactly the, the average age, but um, if you're looking for a trophy class animal, you're looking for sort of five years plus. What, um, so yeah, having never hunted hog deer before, um, for myself, what, I, I know, I know it's hunting, but like, you know, um, what would be a, a typical stag you're looking for? If you want to take something somewhat decent, um, what would you be looking for in characteristics? Um, 13 inches plus. So probably a, a good rule of thumb is, um, the length of the face, so from the tip of the nose through to the middle of the head's about 12 inches. Okay. Um, so you're looking for antlers that are bigger than that, that are bigger than the face. Um, if you're seeing a deer that's antlers look obviously longer than its face, um, you're looking at a trophy class animal. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Um, um, and then do they come out as spikes like like normal deer? They'll come out as a spike and then a fork and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll be spikies and then a forky sort of first head and um, and then grow. Yeah, it's sort of pre five years before they they start getting into their prime. Um, and yeah, they'll develop like any other deer species through those things, and then they'll go backwards too. So, um, and again, the trophies in the eye of the beholder. I had a mate shot um, on his private property, a real old warrior going backwards with, you know, a bit of gnarly stuff going on with his growth. Actually scored well because he was a really big deer, but non-typical. Um, and there's a lot of non-typical fellow. There's fellow with extra points and and some gnarly stuff going on, which are really cool trophies. But um, yeah, different strokes for different folks. It depends what you're after. Yeah, there was that um, cool handlebar hoggy taken last year or the year before um, yeah, with the bow. Yeah. That, that, that thing was incredible. <laughs> um, we had a um an american biologist out with us a few years ago um hunted hog deer and, and took a really good one on private um you know 16 inch really nice deer um i caught up with him in melbourne the next day having a whiskey and all he wanted to show me was the jawbone he was um <laughs> this guy's a, a an expert on white-tailed deer and and always into aging the deer and i'm going i'm just looking at going, craig these antlers are unreal and he's oh check the jawbone check how all down these teeth are like this is um, he was excited because he just shot a deer that had done everything it was going to do and was coming out of its prime. And and to him, that's that's the massive trophy is to shoot an old deer. Yeah, that's that North American model of conservation. You know, the yeah. old, older the yeah. deer, past breeding breeding prime. That's um, how all their scoring systems were set up. So yeah, and I was yeah. To be honest, I'm far more interested in the antlers than I was in the jawbone. <laughs> Uh, I'm just keen to get that. Hopefully, get that first of a species. That's for sure. Um, speaking of North America, um, with the whole ballot system being, you know, one one entry per person every year, what do you think of like the North American taggings, like the ballot systems they have over there, where there's like um, bonus points and stuff like that? So you put in two years in a row, you might get an extra point if you put in like every year consistently type type thing and you know the more you put in the more times your name's in the in the hat yeah um pros and cons i suppose from our perspective the first thing is we're all volunteers so we keep it really simple yeah um, one person one entry um yeah i can certainly see pros in in that american point system but 
Um, you also hear of it becoming a bit of an arms race, and yeah, you might have twenty entries in the in the draw, but unless you got thirty in, you're not in the race. And yeah, um, yeah so it, it could it could be a good thing, I suppose. But yeah, from our perspective, we've got a really simple system. Um, it's fair in that everyone who enters in a given year has exactly the same chance of coming out. No, that's it, it's good. It's definitely good to watch. Um, you know, I've. I think I put in five or six years. I think it might be six years, but one year I didn't get my patch, so I think I've only got the five patches. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so what do you look for when you're setting up for hog, for a hog deer spot over there? Um, you're looking for the deer to feel safe. So they're a cud chewing animal like any other they're, they're gonna they're gonna come out and have a feed and they're going to come out and get some water um, particularly the time of year you're going to hunt them on the coast there it's not that we've had a super hot summer but it's still pretty warm and they're long days um, but they're not just going to walk out to water in the well yeah, I mean you can't say that with deer because they'll everything you say they're not going to do that's exactly <laughs> what a deer will turn around and do but typically um, hog deer are, are really flighty and they want to feel safe. So so you're looking at a place where they've got cover on three sides or where they can walk out and have a good escape path. They're, they're sub deer from the subcontinent, so they're a really small deer that was hunted by Indian wild dogs and Bengal tigers in their in their native habitat. Um, so they're, they're super prey. Um, and... Yeah, just looking for somewhere where you can get some elevation, I suppose, so that you can see them and get that get that wind running underneath you so they can't smell you and they feel safe. What's the winds like on on sun, uh, like Snake Island over there? Is, is it does it vary much or is it just um, No, you tend to get the wind um, blowing reasonably stiff from from one direction. Um, and it can be a real problem in that you'll get days and days of really strong wind sometimes. Um, this time of year, you might get you know three days of of 60, 70, 80, 90 kilometre hour easterlies, um, which is pretty shit house. And the deer don't like it either. They, they're not coming out when the wind's like that. They like all deer species. They really, they really hate the wind. Um, they'll they'll stay in the lee side of it, and they'll they'll get their food close to cover and and just wait it out. So. Um, but yeah, typically it's not super swirly the wind there. That's good. That's good. Um, what about like patterning the deer? Are they a very routine animal, or are they just? No, not really. Um, they'll other than that you can rely on them to to come to water and to come and eat. But no, they they're not going to come to the same place every day and do the same thing. Um, yeah, hog deer are pretty. Um, not dissimilar to Samba, sort of in their behaviour in that way. And that would be yeah, getting chased by tigers and stuff over on yeah, <laughs> in the yeah, Indian yeah. region. <laughs> you, don't want, you don't want to give your predator a heads up like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so something I didn't realise until after I drew drew for Snake Island was getting over there. Um, so there's a couple of different ways you can get yourself over there. Um, I heard the ghost, the coast guard will take you over there for a fee and pick you up as well. Um, speaking of high winds and stuff, um, any recommendations on getting over, over there safely? Yeah. If you're not a really experienced boaty, then definitely 
get a lift with someone who is or or lash out and get there's a few different um, operators coast guard and some local fishermen who will take people over uh, and pick them up um it's it's water that can change really really quickly it can go from super smooth to super rough um and it's really tidal um like the tidal influence there is huge so sunday island for example we've got a jetty on the island that's 490 meters long um and in a given day you can have water lapping that jetty at high tide so that you can bring a big a big boat and i'm in a big boat right up to the shore um to low tide where you can't even get a boat to the end of the jetty yeah well that's... So you, yeah it's, it's it's very very heavily tidal so un, unless you're good with a boat and experience with a boat i wouldn't suggest taking a boat over there i'd suggest finding someone in your period who's going to run their boat or or using one of those other services so what about anchoring up on the island? Just say you take a tinny over there. Um, can you just kind of like pull it up on the beach anywhere above you can, high tide? Yeah, um, yeah, you can. Yeah, you can You can anchor up at high tide. Um, and yeah, even in a big boat, you can anchor up on, on high tide if, if you set your anchor right, just the one anchor, because you don't want your boat getting picked up and swamped. Um, you don't want the water pulling it up and swamping it. Um, or there's places like the Gulf where you could sneak a particularly a small boat um you can sneak it a fair way up the gulf and it'd be quite safe and and out of that out of the main body of water uh the trap with that is again very tidal you'll um you need a good high tide to then get it out and the tide heights change there considerably from day to day so it'll come down to looking at your tide charts and making sure that the tide that you got it in on um there's going to be a big enough tide three or four days later to get the boat back out. Okay. Um, so how far is it from Port Welsh Pool across to Snake Island? What's the rough if you're going, say, straight across from Port Welsh Pool to Snake Island? Oh, 10 minutes by boat if, if, uh, if the going's good and you're barreled over sort of from Port Welsh Pool to the Swashway, which is on that western end. Um, yeah, it'd be 10 minutes by boat. It's not far and probably about you know, 20, 25 from Port Albert to the other end of the island. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, in good conditions, it's it's a very easy boat ride. Um, where's where's best to launch from? I've heard some people say Port Welsh Bull's better, some people say Port Albert's better. Depends um, which end of the island you want to hunt on, I suppose. Um, yeah, and where you want to get into. Port Welsh Bull's um, the bigger of the fishing ports. It's... Um, it's probably more sheltered getting over there, but um, it really depends which end of the island you want to you want to be on. If you want to be hunting on that eastern end of the island, then going out from Port Albert's probably best. But that water can get really rough too. And what about um, parking cars? So you park your car because I'm guessing you're leaving it in either Port Welsh Port or Port Alberton um, uh, at the boat ramps or whatever. What's the um, security like and safety? for people leaving their, their cars yeah. over there for a week? Um, Welsh Pool's got cameras at the boat ramp. It's okay. Um, Port Albert has a really good park at the boat ramp where there's um, free camping for camper vans and caravans. So there's always grey nomads in that in that car park sort of camping out for the, for the week or for a few days. And um, I'd say Port Albert's probably the more secure of the two. And what about parking? Is there like parking 
do you have to pay for parking for while you're over there or is it all free parking? What's... No, it, it, it's all free parking at those big ramps. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, which one you feel safer at. And you might be able to talk to, certainly if you're getting a lift with one of those boat services, um, they'll probably tee you up with a car park that's a bit more secure again. Do you have um, any recommendations for some of these boat services that offer it? So I, I know that the I heard that the Coast Guard, um, yeah, takes a takes a fee for taking you over there and picking you up. But um, what are the yeah? Other? Look, that's probably a really good option, um, particularly the Port Albert Coast Guard. Um, he's a guy who's got a um, a commercial fishing license, knows the waters back to front. Um, I've heard he doesn't miss you with the fee, but um, yeah, that's that, that was my next thing. I heard it's um, it's it's pretty steep, <laughs> but but very reliable and will get you where you want to be on and off in in most weather. What about um, like phone coverage over on the island? Like contacting these um, services while you're over on the island to get you back because there's Telstra service around around the coast there's bits of the island that aren't great but you can normally get telstra service around the coast yeah no worries i'll be taking an in reach over with me so (laughs) one of the the garmin satellite in reaches and and the and the other thing for hunters on the island to do is probably is to stay in touch with their checking station operator um and you know if you're going to get any taxidermy done local stay in touch with your taxidermist too um you know those guys will want to show up and get a a full body mount done or something um, you don't want to just be lumbering, lumping on your taxidermist door in the morning and saying, here's a deer for a full body mount because they're going to have to block six or seven hours out of their day to accommodate you then. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but certainly staying in touch with your checking station operator, um, you, you've got till the Friday to get off the island um, with your deer if you need to, um, but they're not going to pin you to that if the weather's bad. We'd far rather people get off safely um, then get off on some prescribed time frame. Um, it, it'll be a pain and it'll, it'll put them out, but if you let them know, hey, the weather's just too bad, I can't get a boat off, they're not going to ping you for it. And by the same token, most of the checking station operators are pretty flexible. If you're getting off at 9 o'clock at night, they might come and check your deer for you if you've let them know as soon as you shot it and told them what the state of play is, um, rather than make your way around until the next morning. So, how far is the checking station from Snake Island? Uh, it's in Port Welsh Pool. Okay, yeah. Um, at the ferry terminal, so right where you do your briefing, right near the boat ramp. Yeah, beautiful. Um, so, is it? I heard there's also a form that you can get. Um, you know, if you get stuck over there, to cape, cape the deer if need be. Why you're yeah, over there? Yeah, there's a form to dismember. Um, you've got to get it before you go. Is the catch with that? So, if it's at all in your mind that that's what you might be doing, get the form. Yeah. Um, and, and that's that's during you the briefing. You don't have to do it, but then you've you've covered yourself. And that's during the briefing. You can you can yeah. get that and reach out. Yeah, you, you've probably already been in touch with um, a guy from GMA, so I'd I'd let him know. That, as soon as you can, that that's what you're looking at doing. Yep. Okay. No worries. Yeah, I had one of the the guys in my period reach out and uh, ask about that, and um, GMA ran him around a little bit because they didn't know anything about it. <laughs> but then he found the right guy. So, <laughs> so getting towards the end of the questions on hog deer and stuff like that. Um, 
one more I can think of. What? So you said you got to Friday to get off the island. Um, how do you go about keeping meat? Because I'm assuming that February period's pretty warm while you're over there. Um, you got any advice for keeping keeping meat without it spoiling while you're over there until you get yeah, off? Yeah, um, certainly in in those conditions. Um, depending on on where you're camping, of course, and how much you're carrying, how light you're going, but um, meat bags at a minimum is the must. So, you know, a calico meat bag or something breathable. If you can get one of those um, Stony Creek meat safes or, or something like that, they're a really good thing to get some airflow around them and just set up with somewhere where you can get that deer hanging, getting plenty of air around it. Um, it it'll be all right, but um, I'd be more worried in that hot weather um, about cape slip yeah. than, than meat loss. As long as you prepare the deer right, you know, as long as you, you gut it and get all that... Um, all that stuff that's going to take your meat out and get some airflow around it, it'll be all right. Um, probably the the big thing worried about, particularly on Snake Island and all those places, is um, stuff that's going to bite you. Um, protecting yourself from sand flies because um, they'll they'll really monster you um, more so than snakes. You certainly want some snake snake bite bandage just in case, but the likelihood of getting bitten by a snake is very low. Um, the likelihood of getting bitten by sand flies is incredibly high. Yeah, I heard it's um it's pretty bad for sand flies and mosquitoes over there. Um, any advice for tackling them for people that aren't use use for them? Off bushmans and anything you recommend? Yeah, yeah, bushmans with the deets typically the best thing. Yeah. Um, even if you use some sort of scent blocker, you know, a bit of eucalyptus oil or tea tree oil or something as a scent blocker on your butt. That's why it's important to get yourself up high and, and knock that scent bit out of the equation. Um, and long sleeves, long pants. You know, tuck your pants into your socks if you need to or have your gaiters on. Um, but regardless of how hot it is, um, yeah, get your arms and your legs covered up. Get as covered up as you can be. Um, the cream deet tends to work really well in my view. Um, spray can be hit and miss. And the other problem with spray, if you're up in your high seat... You're spraying scent around everywhere, making noise, spraying the, the stuff around, whereas the cream stuff's nice and quiet. It only goes where you put it. Okay, yeah, no, that's uh, that's some great advice there for sure. So snake gators, you you reckon are a must as well over there with a um, name like yeah, Snake yeah, Island? It's, <laughs> it's actually called Snake Island because of its shape. Its, it's okay. legal name is Latrobe Island. It's called Snake Island because it's shaped like a snake. Um, but it's also got a heap of snakes on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what what snakes are over there? Do you know? Is it like tiger snakes and? Yeah, a lot of tigers. Yeah. Um, I think there's red bellies and stuff like that. But what I've seen there's been tigers. Um, what we typically see on on Sunday Island, which is just across from it, is a lot of big tiger snakes. Yeah, awesome. I, I like snakes, so they don't tend to worry me too much. So the <laughs> oh, they're, they're really cool, and and like I said, the the chance of being bitten by them is incredibly low. Um, the consequence of being bitten by them, though, is is pretty severe. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so just yeah, keep all your snake bandages, your first aid kit up to up to the kit, and um, make yeah. sure you got some uh, gaiters and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, and, and just be mindful. Um, you don't want to scare people off, but it, it's just because you're on an island and it's close to society, um, it's a real wilderness hunt. Um, help could be a long way away. Um, that whether, like, If you've got 100k an hour winds, choppers aren't coming in to get you, 
boats aren't getting over there to get you. So have yourself set up so that you're self-sufficient and that you can get yourself out of trouble as much as possible because you, you need to be mindful that help could be a long way away. What's the um, go with emergency um, services heading over there? I heard something about helicopters can't can't land on the actual island. They have to land on like low water. Oh, that that's for the commercial helicopter okay, commercial. operators. Yep. But no, the, the 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 emergency helicopters can can do what they want to do. Um, but there's a lot of that island that you wouldn't get a helicopter in. You you get them on Cow Swamp or the big plane or around the cattlemen's huts. Um, but there's a lot of that island with where the scrub just wouldn't allow it. So, yeah, it, it definitely looks pretty um, scrubby. What what type of heights are like? Is the general scrub at? Is it like six, seven ish foot or? Um, yeah, yeah, it depends on on where you are. Um, there's big big ridges of managum on the northern end. It, it actually it changes the vegetation varies so greatly there. It can go from from tussock flats to sort of banks of your scrub right up through to Managum, but your typical stuff sort of, yeah, six to eight foot high, I suppose. And what are the um, tracks like over there? So I've got the map and it shows you all these different tracks. Are, are they yeah, reasonably um, well man- maintained or are they, it's pretty the, a tough hike? <laughs> the main ones are okay. Um, we were over there two years ago on the side-by-sides and travelled all the main tracks, but with a lot of chainsawing. Yep. Um the tracks on that map that you showed me before that have got dots on them, um, a lot of them barely exist anymore. Yep. Um, so there's a track, for example, out to Eye Swamp, I think it is, that, that shows on the map um, from rifle range to eye, and, and you wouldn't even know there's a track there to look at it. <laughs> so they'll put in there were koalas on Snake Island. Oh, wow. Not native to there either. They've yep. been dropped off by rangers over the years and are um, overpopulated in the managums there, yeah, um, and were completely denuding the managums. So they ran a sterilisation program for years and years. Um, yeah, classic Australian wildlife management. We can't shoot them because they're koalas. So <laughs> uh, they spent a fortune pulling them out of the trees, taking them back to a vet station at the huts, sterilising them, putting them back out, um, and then just stopped. So once they got down to the numbers they wanted, there's no monitoring going on at all. There's still koalas there eating the managum. Um, my point there is the tracks were really well maintained for the koala work. Yeah. Um, but since the koala work finished, parks have not had much of a chance to be on the island and haven't had much budget and haven't been able to, to keep those tracks up. What type of other wildlife? Speaking of koalas, I didn't know that there was koalas over there. What um other type of wildlife are you... Um, likely to run into over there? Uh, you, you roos and wallabies for sure. Um, foxes. Oh, wow. Um, and heaps and heaps of bird life. Um, just teeming with bird life. Um, all sorts of little sort of, you know, antichinus and, and small mammals. Um, but yeah, your big ones are your roos and wallabies. Um, foxes. There's a fox baiting program still goes on there. Um, and yeah, just the bird life's unreal. So foxes, do you recommend to shoot them if you see them or what's what's the go there? No, no, you're only permitted to shoot hog deer. Okay, yep. So all of the ballot areas, um, it's an issue at Blonde Bay and Bull Pool that have got a lot of samba coming in on yep. the ballot areas and hunters will sit in their stands and see samba. Um, the permit that's issued to you is a permit to hunt hog deer there and hog deer only. So. Okay, cool. 
that's uh that's good to know <laughs> so yeah come to the end of all the um hog deer questions that i've i've thought of unless you can think of anything else you want to add for people to to know when they're applying um and if they're drawn and stuff like that um no no just um just to be aware that they really are a um quite a different species to hunt i suppose it's um they're a species where people will tell you you can't walk them up but you can um but don't the 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 absolute best way the most successful way to hunt hog deer is to bore yourself shitless is to get yourself in a tree stand um take a bottle to pee in during the day uh, take some headphones to listen to some podcasts or something if that's what you want to do, but just prepare yourself. You've got, what, four and a half days. It's not very long for the hunt of a lifetime, um, <laughs> but you'd be amazed how many people don't stick it out. You'd be amazed how many people get crap weather and, and leave after two days or or so, you know, aren't seeing deer and leave after two days. Yeah, wow. And, and the other thing with hog deer is that you know, if you've got crap weather, hunker down because once that weather turns good, once that rain stops and that wind drops out, they'll be out. If you can um, sit there, you know, those coastal areas, you might get three days straight of just shit weather and sitting in a one-man tent by yourself for three days straight <laughs> is mind-numbingly boring. Um, but the opportunity of a lifetime might be 10 minutes away. Yes, yes, exactly. And you can take a support person over there with you as well. Um, yeah, so I'll yeah just they, they, they can't hunt, um, so they can't assist you in the hunt. So they can be with you, but they they can't be spotting deer or scouting deer for you. But highly recommend people, if they can, if they've got a mate who's up to going with them, um, yeah, take someone to go with you and, and help you with the, the heavy lifting. Um, it's, it's really flat. You look at a contour map of Snake Island, it's not much, but... Um, walk around it for 12 hours and, and see how buggered you are. It's flat and carrying deer out there can be hard and that sand can bog you down. So having someone with you for company, for safety and for a bit of muscle is highly recommended if you can. So, yeah, on, on that, that they can't spot deer, so they can't take binos or anything over there with them because they're not allowed to point out deer. Oh, for I mean, they, they can do whatever they want while you're there, but they can't be hunting with you and hunting according to game management authority is anything involved in that pursuit of deer for you. If they wanted to go off somewhere else where there's no other hunters and photograph deer or go fishing or it's public land, they can yeah. do what they want. But yeah, they can't be sitting there with binos spotting deer for you. Okay. No worries. That's um yeah, some good information too. It's from what like people I've spoken to um, who have drawn it in the past and drawn it this year. It's, um, quite hard to find bits and pieces of information on on the whole ballot thing what do's and don'ts um is are there any other don'ts that um um no, not not off the top of my head um it, it's really hard trying to say to people you know might sound like we're talking it down um don't take it lightly but don't be daunted by it either you know mo most of us can stick out four and a half days of crap. Yeah. Um, and you might get a deer and it, and it happens and it happens every year. Um, 
guys get a deer in the last 10 minutes of the Friday, um, the thing materialises, hunt to the end. And the other bit of advice that Doug Reed gave years and years ago was when you're heading over there, have in your head what you'd be happy to go home with on the Friday afternoon. And if that thing presents itself first thing on Monday morning, put a bullet into it. Yeah, sh- don't don't pass, <laughs> don't, don't don't pass on the don't first pass. day. Don't shoot on pass the last day. Have in your head what you'd be happy, but <laughs> you, have in your head what if it came to Friday afternoon, what you'd be happy to take home and and take that home if the opportunity presents. Nah, that's some um, some solid advice there. So a couple quick one more, a quick couple for you. Um, what's your best hunting story off the top of your head? Um. Yeah, I think I might have told this one on a podcast before. It was um, as a young bloke hunting Samba, and it was the day when it all came together for me. So I'd been hunting for a couple of years. I was lucky enough to shoot a deer the first time I carried a, a rifle in the bush, um, and that was just because good blokes had put me in a good spot, and I thought I was yeah pretty good having done that. Um, and then I spent a, a couple more years hunting and really just fumbling along um, not knowing what I was doing, not having you know a formal education in deer hunting or having come up with it. And I was hunting one day and got in my spot and and read everything right. I, I, I sat in my spot and I thought, the wind's coming from here. I need to be in a position out of the wind. The deer could come from these directions. These are the positions I need to be in. Um, this is how cool I need to be when I take the shot and this is the breathing I need to do. And it was after a few years of hunting and some success and it, I think it was only a small spiker that I shot but it was probably the most satisfying deer I'd shot because it was the first time that I really felt like I'd done everything right to make it happen it it was you know you make your own luck as a hunter and a fair part of the luck is showing up um, but this was a deer I got by doing those other things as a hunter that make you get a deer by by reading the wind by actually applying some skill to it rather than just being a lucky bike in the right spot and, and shooting a thing that came past. Yeah, that's that's awesome. It, um, it, from people looking into hunting from the outside, they don't, don't see what actually goes into taking a deer or taking an animal of any sort, just the, the countless hours that you spend out out there chasing stuff and putting time in patterning and learning and just yeah every time like even you know I've I've been hunting since I was I was pretty young with my with my pop and you know every single time I go out and especially if I go out with someone else whether they're new to it or um you know been hunting for years you're always picking up little tips and pieces that you didn't think of yeah and it's really cool when things just just click um when when you're doing something and and something new occurs you go well i'd never thought of it that way but i'll never think of it the other the the other way again you know um i don't know if you know peter burke who's a a quite a famous samba hunter here in victoria one of the old school guys but um burke does a the ada hunter education course every year um does a great talk but after 60 years or whatever it is of hunting samba and he hunts them every day um, Berkey says the first thing he does when he walks out of the bush every day is says, "Okay, what did I learn today?" <laughs> yeah, that's that's just hunting hunting any deer species. Yeah, it's everything's constantly changing. You just can't fully pattern them. 
don't know, then we wouldn't love them if you could. Yeah, ex- um, yeah, hundred percent. It's it's not an easy thing to do, and that's why we like being out there suffering. <laughs> yeah. So, how do you see the public views on hunting? Um, it's really interesting. Um, and and being in a job where I sort of cover more than deer now, it's quite interesting. So, seeing this public differentiate between hunting ducks and hunting deer, for example. Um, it depends on who's hunting and what they're hunting, um, which is completely illogical if you think about it. But the the public sees a farmer shooting rabbits as perfectly okay, sees a hunter shooting deer as less okay, and sees a hunter shooting ducks as even less okay. Um, it's something that's changing, um, certainly changing where you are in South Australia, as you've seen in recent years, and changing really quickly here in Victoria. Yeah. As we get this more urbanised society, um, we see the public view on what we do um, switching against us, our social licence under challenge. Um, But on the flip side, you see this wild food movement taking off and it actually being a bit hipster and a bit cool to to consume wild game and to hunt wild game. So I see the public view as a bit confused, I suppose, but... um, I think for the most part, they'll tolerate us if what we're doing is humane. If we can demonstrate that what we're doing is sustainable and humane, I think for the most part, I don't think the public's ever going to en masse love us, but I think for the most part, they'll tolerate us if we can demonstrate that. Yeah, it's it's funny for the most part. If you're, you're talking to someone and you go, um, you know, how do you feel about hunting? Their first thing will be like, as long as it's not trophy hunting, it's okay. As long as it's pest management or, you yeah. know, something like that or if you're only hunting for meat that's fine you know and then you start breaking it down are you fine with this and yeah i'm fine with that are you fine with this oh no i don't like duck hunting but then you break down like the food aspect and the conservation aspect sides of things and they're like oh okay i didn't think of it like that that's not what the the mainstream media portrays or um any of these lobbyist groups that are out there that are constantly attacking duck hunting <laughs> yeah, and it's very much a a human value we put on. I, I don't think the quarry cares particularly what we think of it. Um, I don't. It's a distinction that we make as humans and as a society about, um, like I said, this you know, well, oh, deer are bad, and that the conversation you're having with your your mate, the biologist, well, well deer are bad because they're ex- an exotic, and kangaroos are good because they're a native. I, I don't think that the that the plant species that are being damaged by either of those things really care if it's a native or an exotic eating them. Um, I think the impacts are just the same. It's it's a weird way that society thinks about what we do. Yeah, we we're, we're having a um, funny chat about it, him and I, the other day. And, you know, he's like, deer damaged trees, big trees, all of this stuff. I'm like, I haven't seen too many, you know, larger trees killed by a deer. I've seen plenty of saplings, you know, shredded shredded by deer. And he's like, nah, nah, they, you know, they destroy Aboriginal heritage sites by rubbing on, you know, scar trees and stuff like that. I'm like, I've seen more cockatoos kill bigger gum trees than I've ever seen deer kill larger gum trees. <laughs> and he's like, it's, oh. he's, like um... he's like, you got me there. <laughs> It's an interesting one that really comes to head for me when you go to Wilson's Promontory, which is um, just to the west of where you'll be hunting on Snake Island. It's 
I think it's Australia's second oldest national park. Beautiful place. Um, and they've just come off the back of a massive campaign of culling hog deer on the prom, um, aerial culling the works, like really decimated the population of hog deer there. And the rationale that was being given for it is, you know, all the same stuff. They damage Aboriginal shell middens. Um, they damage native vegetation, um, erosion. Your classic, um, these are the negative impacts we can't live with. Um, what's really funny about it on the prom is that the deer were introduced there in 1865 or thereabouts. Um, the kangaroos were introduced to the prom in 1910. Oh, wow. <laughs> by the same people, by the Acclimatisation Society, there's no fossil records, no his, no biological history of kangaroos having ever been on Wilson's promontory. Um, and massive damage to plant communities, huge population of roos, massive damage. Um, wombats were introduced there in 1910, and I've got video of them digging up shell middens. Um, yet there's no mention of the overabundant kangaroos and the overabundant wombats and all this terrible damage they're doing. There's no aerial culling program. You can walk into the Parks Victoria gift shop at Tidal River and buy teddy bears of the kangaroos and the wombats. Um, the rationale for removing the hog deer is that they're this terrible introduced species that's doing all this damage. They've been there for 50 years longer than the kangaroos and the wombats have. <laughs> yeah, wow, that's that's really interesting. I'm definitely keen to... Um look more into that that's for sure and i know um dan the biologist he'll um hear this when it's out and um be pretty keen to look into that and find any rebuttal he he can try and find on it <laughs> well, yeah and look i hope it's not a rebuttal you know and these things are are complex oh, uh, the conversations are. about about deer are complex and you know i've come off spending a a, a long time in the deer association that's that's gone from literally arguing that basically deer have no impact or their impact's completely benign, which is just not true. Um, but the reverse is is just as untrue. The reverse that all deer everywhere are these terribly destructive things is also untrue. And I just, yeah, I really hope that we'll reach a point where we can um, embrace the nuance in the conversation and, and deal with these things in a bit more of a, with a bit more clear heads and, and based on, on the impacts rather than, than taking these ideological viewpoints. Yeah, it's definitely a hard one. It's a battle I find myself thinking about all the time is, you know, I, I grew up loving conservation type of stuff, you know. I wanted to be a park ranger growing up as a kid, you know. Steve Irwin was my idol. Sit yeah. down watching all these David Attenborough documentaries on everything, learning everything I could about animals, you know, and then... You know, I've been hunting ever since I was a young kid, so, like, explaining to people I can still love animals but hunt them at the same time. But then when I started deer hunting, you know, you're getting all these people going, deer are bad, deer are this, they're doing that. And it's just like, I wouldn't want the landscape without deer, you know. If I had a, you know, a one magic wish and it was like, wipe out all deer off of Australia or wipe out all kangaroos off of Australia. I would go kangaroos in a heartbeat, just gone, you know? Um, deer have such such more of a special place in my heart than, you know, most of our native animals do. I wouldn't be who I am today without having deer around, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and there's something, um, you know, I suppose you think similarly to what I do, but there's just something captivating about deer. There's... um. 
they've captured human imagination through time. There's just something about that animal. Um, there's there's cave drawings in the Kimberley um, that predate European settlement by you know, twenty thousand years or something of Rusidi. Oh wow! Um, so so Indigenous Australians or Malaccan traders or someone who's been up through Papua New Guinea and made their way into Australia you know, tens of thousands of years before Europeans got here. They get to a cave in the Kimberley, far far from where a deer's ever been, and they draw deer on the wall. That's that's incredible. I'm gonna have to definitely um, look into that. I I haven't heard that one heard about that before either. So I'm learning lots of lots of interesting stuff. I want to go go read into now. <laughs> um, right, cool. So how would you change the public views on hunting and hunters, and what can hunters do to change the views on themselves? Um, I think all hunters can be ambassadors um, for hunting. I think, uh, yeah, the real basic stuff, and it's probably not as prevalent where you are in, in South Oz, but where we are, um, it's a constant of you know, cover up a deer if you're carrying it home on the back of your ute from up the bush. Don't have it sticking out for everyone on the freeway to see um, and engage in that venison diplomacy. If you work in a workplace with people who aren't exposed to hunting, um, give them some sausages, give them some really nice entry-level venison that everyone can eat, you know, sausage rolls or pies or um, engage in that venison diplomacy, show people that what we do is is something that we get an awful lot out of and that we get food out of and um, just be a decent person. When you talk about hunting, don't badger people, don't call them the worst thing it's a trap i fell into when i was young i think a lot of guys do is um call anyone who eats meat who doesn't like hunting a hypocrite and badger them um makes you feel good but it certainly doesn't change their minds yeah Um, definitely it's 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 definitely a hard one because you know as hunters in australia we we seem to be in this defense mode constantly you know it constantly seems like we have to have our backs up against the wall and it's just constant defending everything that we do as hunters and fighting for who we want. So it, it is hard on that that aspect to, you know, be civil with some people when you hear the same thing over and over and over from multiple different people. But that, you know, each time someone new says it to you, they haven't heard your side yet properly. So if you lash out at them and attack them straight away, that's what they're going to think hunters are like. I've been guilty of it in the past, you know. Um, as you said, we all we all probably have, especially with social media. But um, you, you made a good, good point with the venison diplomacy there. Um, every place I've worked, I've always, you know... Um, especially April, I'm bringing bags of mints in for everyone to take home. I'm cooking steaks up on the on the barbecue for everyone for lunch. You know, I've had the office ladies at my work eating venison heart and trying kidney and liver and stuff like that. So, Yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's, that's really all we can do. And, and be an ethical hunter in the bush, be safe, be humane. Um, certainly if you're hunting public land, always have it in your mind that it's public land, it belongs to everyone and everyone deserves to enjoy it, um, even if they don't feel the same way about you. That's something I'm definitely jealous of, is the um, Victorian model of public land. 
Like, oh, uh, every, every South Australian hunter wishes we had something like that. It's it's just an incredible um, opportunity and that you guys have over there. Like, the way you guys manage deer. Yes, I know you have helicopter culling and stuff like that. We all hate it. Um, but, you know, the fact that you're allowed on public land to go chase them, you know, for a small, small fair year, you can go shoot the third largest deer species in the world and take home as much meat as you want. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really cool, and it really is hunter's paradise. It is. Uh, hunter's and fish's paradise, you know. Your, your whole licensing system for fishing as well is just incredible, um, you know, South uh, Australians. You, you, you guys have got... Um, you guys think that the snapper that we keep are, are too small there? You think they're pinkies and you throw them away? You guys got some pretty cool fish. <laughs> We're not allowed to catch them. They've just put another no, right, another yeah. <laughs> another ban in place for another three and a half years, unfortunately. So that's seven years in South Australia without snapper fishing. I didn't mean to rub it in my apologies. <laughs> no, nah, it's all good, man. It's all good. It's 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 one of those things, you know, when um greenies and animal welfare people and then biologists and fishermen and commercial fishermen. It's just one of those deep, deep, deep rabbit holes that we want to avoid right now. (laughs) (laughs) So what is hunting to you? Um, it's, um, it's a way of life. I suppose it sounds a bit trite, but, um, it's something that's, that's really, um, encompassed my life in ways I never thought it would when I just got into hunting as a young bloke as, um, a thing to do on the weekends. It's it's become um, you know the focus of much of my adult life, advocating for hunters and and working with deer and deer management and um, yeah, it's yeah I've, I've I can't really explain it. I think that's probably part of the beauty of hunting is that it, it's got this intangible benefit. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's a real connection with nature and a connection with the land. Um, in a way that nothing else, hunting and fishing, give you that in a way that nothing else I've experienced does. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more. That's that's why that's one of my favourite favorite questions on the podcast because the way everyone describes it is all different but the same and I can relate to it all. Um, you got got some you got some kids? I've got a, a nine-year-old boy wandering around here somewhere who probably should be in bed, yeah. <laughs> Have you um, had the opportunity to take him out with you? Um, I'm not 100% sure what the law is over in Victoria. He can't shoot till he's 12. Yep. Um, but, yeah, he certainly comes out. He spends, a, um, as a family, we're involved in Sunday Island, so um, he spends an awful lot of his life involved in a really rich hunting community. Um, so over on a place that's crawling with deer and, and people fishing all the time and and fish and um yeah, he's he's spent his life immersed in in hunting and fishing. Um whether that's a path he takes in his life is a is a choice for him, I suppose. Yeah, that's great. Um yeah, I got a um eight year old stepson and he's he comes out with me one or two days every every rut and we've taken a couple of deer together. Um, you know, I shoot him. He's just there for the the ride. And then uh, yesterday, I took my um, my youngest. He's uh, almost three, and we went out uh, flushing some hairs out of the the long grass with the twenty two, and um, had another mate there and his his four year olds. So the those two got to experience you know their first first game scene killed, and they absolutely loved it. The smiles on their face were just priceless. 
Awesome. Yeah. So that's the end of the podcast. That's all the uh, questions I have for you. So I thank you very much for coming on. Um, social media side, if people want to hear more from you, see what you're doing with Blonde Bay um, Hog Deer Advisory Group or with Double S Double A, where can they see all of this stuff? Um, yeah, Blonde Bay Hog Deer on Facebook. Um, and with Double S Double A on Double S Double A Victoria on Facebook or Instagram. No worries. Awesome. I'll um, yeah, put, put links to both of those in the um, show notes. Uh, but I really appreciate you coming on. I've um, learned a hell of a lot and it's just made me very, very itchy to get over the, to Snake Island. Uh, thanks a lot for having us on, Zach. And, um, yeah, all the best. We should have, um, yeah, all the best of luck for your hunt on Snake. Um, hopefully I'll get to meet you um, at the... Uh, at the briefing, if I get over there, I quite often get over there for the Sunday briefings when I get a chance. So Awesome. Well, I, I definitely hope I get to um, put a face to the name and the voice, that's for sure. No, easy. No, but, Thank you for coming on, mate. And, um, yeah, love all the work that you, you guys are doing over there. Uh, thanks, Zach. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening to another episode of Hunting Connection Podcast. Please head over to our social media and give us a follow. Instagram at Hunting Connection Podcast, Facebook at Hunting Connection Podcast, Twitter at Hunting Connect, TikTok at Hunting Connection Podcast. If you've enjoyed, please share with your friends and family, tag us in your photos and videos on social media, subscribe, rate and review to help grow the podcast. If you're interested in giving additional support to the podcast you can head over to our podcast patreon page thank you very much for listening and catch you next episode